We're looking at uh, this morning uh, the gospel and achievement and uh, if you've been around on the last few weeks uh, we're building up on a, a, a several points uh, sort of uh, short series in regard to uh, the, the gospel. So we've looked at I think a plan and we've looked at uh, the, the cross was the, the point of, uh, uh, of all things and this week we're looking at uh, the, uh, the gospel and achievement. Oh, look at that. Eh? So, let's just put this in a little bit of context. Don't smile at my slides, Chris. I've worked a lot of time on this. Uh, but just uh, uh, moved actually by love, uh, God in his son uh, substituted himself in the place of sinners. That is the heart of the cross. But actually, what was accomplished uh, on the cross? What was achieved by the cross? What, what did he accomplish by uh, self-sacrifice? What did he accomplish by uh, self-substitution? Well, there are many things that happened on, in those hours as Jesus was nailed uh, to the cross. Uh, his salvation actually uh, sort of uh, uh, his act on the cross actually achieved a salvation of a physical earth so the earth was also saved through the act of Jesus on the cross now we haven't got time to go into that that is theologically complicated but that's what happened what also happened on the cross is that uh, it, was, it was what theologians called uh, revelatory. It was a revelatory act, which I always thought was a, a cosmetic, but there you go. Uh, and uh, the ladies got that, the men didn't. In that what happened is that God showed uh, an intensity of his character on the cross that had not been seen before. So on the cross, you could see wonderful justice administered. You could see extreme love. And with all the things that you saw on the cross, which include the acts that surround the cross, you see wisdom and power. So God is very focused uh, on the cross. Evil was conquered. Victory over Satan. The book of Colossians tells you that. There was a cosmic overthrow of the principalities and powers. So when you think of the cross, you have to think of it not just as Jesus was nailed there and hanging there, which is what the hymn writers often say, he was hanging. All sorts of activity was going on. Remember temple curtains being in torn in two darkness over the face everything was going on you have to try and think about it that all sorts of things were, were happening but today what I want to look at is what happened uh, on the cross to you personally uh, not to me just to you no, to us and I want to look at that and, and see what happened uh, what did we receive? What, ha- what was happening on the cross that affects us personally? And my prayer is that this won't be an intellectual exercise because it is. <laughs> I don't want it to be like that. I actually would like to get under your skin a little bit, uh, if I can. And if you fall asleep, I'll have failed. And I want us to stir our hearts considerably. I don't know what will 
get to you if the cross doesn't. So my aim is to stir your heart considerably, to stir your worship greatly. I'm hoping that next week you'll be early and on time and eager to worship the Lord. And I'm hoping as well, my prayer is, that the cross isn't just something that you see in history, but it is something actually that should affect the way that we behave and think. So it affects not just the way that I am, but the way that I am here and view things. And that is my aim. The way that I want to do that is to take you through some theological words and big ones for me because I was brought up in Willenhall, so that means that I can only construct words of about three letters. So here's the first one. How about that? Now, I was brought up on the King James Version. That's the call. For you, that's called the real Bible, okay? What you have is not the real Bible. It's a pretend one. And, uh, but I was brought up on that. And actually, the ESV, just so that you uh, NIV lovers, liberals, might uh, n- get to understand, part of the ESV was to bring it back into some level of correctness, which you liberal NIV lovers uh, have lived with for a long time. One of those words was to use the word propitiation. So in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, it says this, and are justified by, a gra- by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. So now you understand what was going on on the cross. Yeah, yeah. Propitiation was going on on the cross, okay? 1 John 2 verse 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. Hear that? The cross should stop you from sinning. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, who is righteous, nailed to the cross. He is the propitiation for our sins. Not only ours, but for all all the sins of the whole world. 1 John 4.10 In this love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. You're going to love the word by the end of it. Propitiation, uh, uh, to propitiate somebody, means to appease or to pacify their anger, his anger. And in the case of the cross, God's anger to you, a sinner, was being appeased by Jesus on the cross. Jesus removed the wrath of God that we justly deserved. In fact, it goes even further. Propitiation is not simply a sacrifice that removes wrath, but a sacrifice that removes wrath and turns it into our favour. It's more than that. It's extraordinary. That's what is wonderful about it. 
And the imagery used in propitiation is uh, a temple court where all sorts of sacrifices are made. And that's what you have to think of when you're thinking of the cross. So why is propitiation necessary? First, the reason that propitiation is necessary is that I don't know whether you realize this yet, but your sin, my sin, arouses the wrath of God. That's made you all go under your chairs. This does not mean that God's going to fly off at the handle at you, lose his temper for no apparent reason. He's not like this at all. You have to remember this, particularly when you're going through difficult times. God cannot be spiteful. He's not irrational. He's not unpredictable. He's not vindictive. When it says in the Bible, he's the same yesterday and today and forever, we always go with that one on faithfulness, don't we? Ah, it's really secure because I know that God is the same yesterday, today, forever. I feel good about that. But that actually means that every part of his character is the same yesterday and today and forever. We sort of bring it down to a goo feeling. The goo feeling is, you know, God's yesterday, I feel good about that. But actually, every part of his character is affected by that statement. Now, what does that mean? It means this. If he's the same yesterday and today forever, that even in his wrath and his anger towards sin, it's the same yesterday and today forever. He's steady. He's unrelenting. He's unremitting. He's uncompromising towards sin and evil in all its forms and manifestations, including us. And on the cross, his anger towards you and I was appeased. It was satisfied, as the theologians call it. That's what was happening when Jesus was nailed to a cross. Secondly, Who makes then this propitiation? Well, in the human context, or in Nigel's marriage, it's the one who cracks first. Is that not the case? Who seeks out the issue to resolve it? That's what happens, isn't it? There's a conflict. Somebody somewhere cracks. It's difficult to drive four and a half hours in silence. (laughs) And the ones that laugh means that they've done it worse than four and a half hours so somebody somewhere has to crack let me just get this in god did not crack okay he didn't crack let's get this straight you can't persuade cajole bribe god to forgive us that isn't the way that it works we deserve nothing but judgment from our sin that's the that's the fact there's nothing that we can do say or contribute or compensate for our sins so that he would turn away his anger nor has jesus in heaven looked at us and said oh we can't keep this up forever let me just go down to earth and settle it he didn't do that he didn't say enough's enough I can't see any way around this. I'm just going to have to die. He didn't do that. No. His anger is there towards sin and sinners. But alongside of that, the initiative came 
from God in his mercy and love and grace. Jesus died for you because God loved you. That's it. His anger was against you, but he loved you. Thirdly, what was the propitiatory sacrifice? In the past, the Old Testament, it had been an animal or a vegetable. Costly enough. Particularly if that's all that you had got. You have to remember uh, Jesus' parents going to the temple to make sacrifices and they sacrificed two small birds. That's all that they had to give. Costly. Now think about it from God's perspective. God needs to make a sacrifice. He could have offered an angel or an heavenly being. Uh, They are costly in themselves, uh, extraordinary in themselves, but not connected with his Trinitarian family. But he didn't. It wasn't like a, a Mary and Joseph have said, well, we've just got these two birds. They don't really affect us, but we can sacrifice them. No. He offered, if you think about the doctrine He offered himself. God is, Jesus is both fully man and fully God. So technically, he offered himself as a sacrifice for himself. I, I will stand in the place of my own anger. He diverted his own anger. I will pay the price for their sin against me you have to get your head around that one it's huge absolutely huge to do that so that's propitiation that was happening on the cross the other thing that was happening on the cross was redemption so the imagery has changed now we're no longer in the temple we're no longer making sacrifices I want to take you to the marketplace we'll call it the French market shall we down at uh, Wrexham or whatever market you can dream of So we're moving from the ritual to the business of buying and selling. And to redeem is to to buy back or to, uh, to buy. But it's much more than that. The focus is not on the buying, as it were, but the price of the release. And that's the important thing when we're thinking about redemption. It isn't just that you bought back. It's what was the price that you were bought back with then. That's the price. The imagery used as well the biblical imagery used in terms of redemption was two things one was the sorry state of the person being bought back or the thing that these people are in a mess now if you think about that if you were in a good slave market you you put up the slaves like this and and you put up a few fine good men and at the end of it is nigel okay 55 whatever Looks gone, stomach protruding, back in a state. And by the side of me are things like, I don't know, 99 Spartacus-looking slaves. You know, as, as the, Filippi- the, the Filipino girls keep asking me, when will my six-pack return? So if you can imagine, I'm standing there. Now, what you wouldn't do is that you wouldn't look at the bloke at the end and say, 
I'll feel sorry for him, let's buy him. And what price would you buy him for then at the end? That's the little one with the short legs and the big stomach and the dodgy back. What would you buy him for? Well, I'll tell you what. I know that we can look along the line here and see these magnificent specimens of men. But we will buy him for the same price as we buy them. Listen, I'm two for one. <laughs> That's, so you have, to remember, you have to remember the sorry state that you're in and, and what you look like to the person saving you. Ask yourself this question. Why would Jesus want to buy you? Go on. Ask it. Oh, do you ask that question all along? Look at you. Just look at this. Why would Jesus buy this? Come on. You're thinking, a fine fella of a man. Well, you won't be forever. I can tell you that. <laughs> it's just true. You wake up and you think, dribble patch. Where did that come from? What's that? Turn my head on the other side. Wake up. Two dribble patches. What's going on? Then you go, ah, oh, the other one was Cali. I know. <laughs> so, you know. So that's the first thing. Think of yourself as a sorry state. Don't think yourself, I was a wonderful person, me. Stop it. It's wrong. Get a life. We'll get a true life. Secondly, is that you are in captivity. A slave cannot do anything about itself. It cannot save itself. It relies on someone else giving them their freedom. Please realize this. You are not only a sorry bunch, you are a bunch that cannot do anything about rescuing yourself. You rely on another person. What has caused that? Sin. The reason that you are sorry and in captivity is your sin. Oh, perfect man that I am. No. Oh, sinner that you are. Think about it. Enough to make Joe run. <laughs> I'm a sinner. I, I need to go. He's such an horrible person, that preacher. Okay, right. Romans, Joe, it gets better. Come back for the good bit. Okay, Romans chapter 7, verse 23. But I see in my members, my members, everything about me, my members, yes, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in all my members. I'm captive to this. In the Old Testament, property and animals and persons, they could be redeemed by the payment of a price. There existed what they called a kinsman redeemer, a nice guy. He was allowed to uh, buy back property, stock and people and, and bring it back into the family. If you want to read about that, read the story of Ruth and Boaz. You can do that. And the vocabulary of redemption and captivity is used also in regard to slavery in Egypt and Babylon. And we can see when we look at Egypt, we have to look at it and personalize it. When we look at things like uh, Babylon and Israel in captive in Babylon, we have to look at it and see, look, that is me in my sin. That's the way that I am. That's the way that it is. It isn't look, oh, you know, those, those sort of, what was the cartoon with, with the, 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 about the, uh, the Egypt thing? 
Prince of Egypt, rubbish. We sort of got this glowing sort of thing. All the kids are going, oh, no. The idea of, the pre- of, of Babylon and Egypt is so that you might find out what you are actually really like or what it's like to live in sin. Okay, that's the way. And the horrific res- happenings of captivity. And it's difficult to see in that term what the, uh, what the, how the salvation worked in terms of Babylon and in terms of Israel. In fact, what happens is that it says that God uh, saved Israel by his outstretched arm and his mighty hand, which is not really helpful in terms of redemption, except that it's an explanation that it cost him, himself, to redeem them. That's the picture. Now, there are other images in the Old Testament. There are loads of redemption. We haven't got time to go there. But as we enter into the New Testament, there's a change that occurs. Uh, although it's still true that, the, uh, that there are those that need redemption and that they're in a mess and they can't help themselves, the plight now is not a nation that's capt- captured them. It isn't anything like that. Their plight now is a corrupt heart and the only payment for the redemption of a of a corrupt heart is the atoning sacrifice of a son so when jesus comes in imagine this up to this point sin has been satisfied and redemption has been given uh, in in a particular way and jesus stands up And he talks about this in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Imagine the shock of this. And he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That would have been a shocking statement. Because they are here. You are going to pay the price for my heart. And we have to remember this. We are not held captive by misfortune. Things didn't just go wrong in your life or a raging nation. You are held captive because you sin. You were born in it. You live in it. That is the way that you and I are. And from the way to release you from the consequences of that sin there is only one payment that can be made. Firstly, what is the plight from which we we can't extricate ourselves that makes it necessary for us to be redeemed? Well, we're sinners. We live in the consequences of a fallen world, don't we? Don't you find that? In us and around us are sinful motives and attitudes wherever we go. I am actually trapped, I don't know whether you realise this, by sin. Everyone else's sin and my sin means that I'm unable to release myself from the consequences of it. So Paul wrote to the Ephesians, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once worked. You followed the course of the world. You follow the prince of the power of the air. The spirit there is now at work in you is the sons of disobedience, among whom uh, we have all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying it, carried out the desires of our body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
We're in captive to our sin. Secondly, we need to consider the price paid. Jesus. To begin with, the incarnation. (laughs) Him entering our world was costly enough. The Son of Man became flesh. That's costly enough. Stables and, and all that. And Herods and all that stuff. That's costly enough, wouldn't you think? And yet the incarnation could not pay your debt. Couldn't. Despite, let me just put this, the, the incarnation and the resurrection is not the event. The cross is the event. The atonement is the event. The price paid meant that there had to be a sacrifice. There had to be a death. And there had to be something that meant that a person would be battered emotionally, physically, and spiritually on our behalf. 1 Peter 1 verse 18 and 19 knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways that are inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold but with what? The precious blood of Christ. How difficult was that? Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So thirdly who is then this redeemer? What's the quality like of the Redeemer? It's Jesus that has paid the price to save you. <laughs> uh, this is not me. I just I wrote this, but I don't think it was. I just I just wrote this. Nigel, what's your attitude to the one who saved you? Have I not done that? Oh, yeah. What's my attitude to the one who saved you? Do not think about that. Ask yourself, real deep question. What, what really is your attitude to the one who saved you? I think mine is poor. And I'm challenged by that. Revelation 5 verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were what? Slain. And your blood ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Worthy. Worthy is the one who's slain. Worthy is the one whose blood ransomed people for God. Worthy. How are we doing, folks? Worthy, worthy, worthy. And yet the smallest hiccup, gone. It's not worthy, is it? Can't get out of bed. Who Jesus is and what Jesus has done 
is it. Your life, my life, exists to bring worth to him. Heaven means that I call out worthy. Using the imagery of slavery and captivity, we have been bought by Jesus at an immeasurable price. Therefore, we have no business becoming slaves again, as Paul says, to anyone else or anything else. Because when we become a slave to fear, people, situations, thought trains, whatever, what we demonstrate is Jesus is not worthy. What we do is that we point and say, Jesus is inadequate, and the cross is, an, is inadequate, and the price paid was not enough. But when Jesus triumphs over you, and I mean that because you're not with me at the moment, you need to wake up. When Jesus triumphs over your practical situation in your marriage and your family, you prove the price that he prayed on the cross. When you don't, you prove him to be inadequate. You make the gospel low. He's not the only one that does that. I do that. You do that, don't you? Yeah? So... You need to measure up, I need to measure up to the cross. Yeah? I said to you once, I'm just stopping now, you need to come out of the, and you joke with me, the corner, the red corner fighting. And you joke with me and you said, the blue corner. And that was your way of covering up. I just want to prophetically say, I didn't mean to say, you can check my notes. In fact, you check Dorothy's, they're in front of you, they're not there. I just want to say this to you. You haven't done it yet, have you? Okay, ding, 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 ding. The bell's rung. Here's Grace, go do it now. Ding, 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 ding. Do you hear that? That's God's bell. He's ringing it. Go home come out fighting third thing didn't mean to do that apologies justification now we move into the imagery of the law court justification is the opposite to condemnation Romans chapter 5 verse 18 therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men so the act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, who was, who was raised and is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Both of these scriptures are verdicts of a judge who pronounces the accused guilty or not guilty. So let's return to the Old Testament where all these things come from. If you remember, God says to Moses, I want you, I'm going to give you instructions uh, and so that you might raise up judges so that they could dis- decide cases and, uh, that would be referred to you. Them. You can equip them, justi- you justify them, 
you can acquit the innocent and you can condemn the guilty. That's uh, Deuteronomy 25. I want you to raise these people up. If they're innocent, you let them free. If they're guilty, they have to serve a punishment. And that's the way that it was. That was what justification means. Justification means that you stand up, you stand before a judge, and, and you stand and you say, I am, you, we think that you are guilty. Therefore, you will serve this. And that was the way that the Old Testament had been run up to the point of Jesus. But you think about this. To condemn the righteous... And to justify the unrighteous would be a turn of his head of, of, of administration. Because Jesus is now going to come and do the opposite to what everybody had experienced to that point. He's going to turn it on his head. So Paul writes to Rome, and can you imagine the readers? Can you imagine the law courts? Can you imagine the people that would have been in the justice systems of that day? Paul writes to Rome and he says, And the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith counts him as righteousness. How could he do such a thing? This is absolutely outrageous. I am standing in the dock. I am clearly guilty. Absolutely clearly guilty. I have no defense at all. I've got nothing that I can say that can come and and appease this judge that stands in front of me. (laughs) And yet the judge stands up and says, you are free to go. It is utterly ridiculous and stupid. We have reversed a system that existed in the Old Testament by saying the unrighteous can go free. What? That's the extraordinary thing. So that's, that's what we have to catch up with. How could God do such a thing? What is God playing at? How can the righteous one declare the unrighteous righteous? place yourself in the dock guilty you are a little bit no lots absolutely lots that's why you say that's why God says doesn't it? the issue of salvation by works is not an issue of salvation by works it's the doctrine of justification works cannot do because you as much as you stand up in the dock you can't save yourself you are guilty So the question is, how on earth does it happen that an unrighteous bunch like us gets the not guilty verdict? You want to run out the court quick. They might have got it wrong. Don't you know you look at this? This, uh, So this is why we want you to think of what's happening on the cross. Sacrifices made, prices paid, law courts being dealt with. It's a lot going on in it, really. So let's have a look at this. Firstly, the source of our justification is found in this one expression. We are justified by his grace, Romans 3, 24. That is, by his utterly (laughs) deserved, by his utter utter favour. He just decided to do it. What? And it wasn't a whim. 
How do we know that? Because Paul writes, since there is no one righteous, not one. Okay, we understand that. What we know is that no one can declare himself righteous in God's sight. He justifies because he wants to. It's just like that. You stand up in the dock, you realize that you're a mess, you stand up and you just think, there's nothing that can save me, and God goes, I want to. That's it. It is. No hell for you then. Uh, Please get it. It's quite funny, really. I, I it's quite funny, really. I, 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 I don't know whether you noticed this, that, that there was a code of conduct for, for gold medal winners at the Olympics. And the, the first code of conduct was, Mo Farah got into trouble with it, you will only have the flag that I give you. That was the first one. There were actually people that had got the nation's flags. Whether to get, you couldn't have a have one on. Do you remember this? Where what's it? Just Ennis did it, and they and some of these people have had their own flag, and they've got into trouble with the Olympics because they didn't have their own flags. That was the first thing. The second thing was one lap and one lap only. And after the one lap, we will put out a load of guards, and we will stop you, and we will usher you through. But what is interesting is this, is that when you've done something of some sort of, when you get something, everybody goes bonkers and it breaks the rules, don't they? So Mo Farah did get the flag that he wanted to because all heck let loose because he'd won and he was going to get the flag. Not only did he do that, he let what? His daughter go on the pitch! What was that? And she was not going. We didn't see. Did you see? Over the fence she goes. And into it she goes. And she's just in, in there. And then I don't know whether you watched whether you watched Usain, Usain Bolt. You know, please don't. And he, as he moves towards the crowd. But he's into the crowd. And they're pulling him back and trying to get this. And the thing is that I don't know whether Christians have got this yet. But... It's sort of, you know, when we declared not guilty, it's sort of, hmm. And I, I, I have to admit, it is the most puzzling thing to me that exists in my life that Christians stand in the dock and there's not a Mo Farah moment. <laughs> I cannot understand it. And sometimes Callie and I, we're, even yesterday, we're driving in the car saying, I just, I find this the most puzzling thing in the world. That, that we have been given the greatest gift in the world at the greatest of price. And we sort of, you know, you can get down from the dock. And we go, well, all right then. <laughs> Let me just let me ask you this. What is up with you? What is the matter? Because I have seen you at weddings. I mean, what is it doing all that stuff? Come to church. We sit through it. 
We don't want to. This is your gold medal moment. That's what church is all about. Church is all about going mad for the time that we've got it because we've been declared not guilty. It's a, this. And all this, right? Let me jump. I'm on one here. Let me just. It is not my personality. What? I have been declared not guilty. And you go, that's good. I'm going to keep this within my personality. Let me just get this straight. Not in heaven, you won't. But the good thing about in heaven is that when you get to heaven, you will not wet yourself because it's impossible. But your delight will explode in heaven. Trousers are falling down. Look, I don't get this either. I just get me and you. What I don't get is I don't get salvation. Don't get it, won't get it, will ever understand. Don't get it ever. What a, don't get it. What I get is that I'm an unappreciative ratbag. Because, you know, and it all goes like this. Didn't like the first song that Joe chose? Did you like the first song that Joe chose? <laughs> oh, if Phil Harmon was here... Too many Stuart Town ends this morning. <laughs> Come on, guys. We have been declared not guilty. No hell. You are free. Hooray! What by you? No, his grace. <laughs> what by the money that you paid the bloke as you're going, you shifted him five quid. No, free gift. Yeah, that's the extraordinary thing. Tom Wright says this. No sin, no need of justification, no grace, no possibility of it. You can work that one out afterwards. Secondly, justification has to do with justice. Hear this. Please hear this. It matters. To say that we're justified by grace tells us the source of our justification, but tells us nothing about the basis of it. I'm just reading this because I need to catch up. Justification is not forgiveness that overlooks the guilty. It's not compassionate forgetfulness. Wrongdoing deserves justice, does it not? Yes. When God declares good pe- bad people good, or saying, or saying that he's not saying that we weren't sinners in the first place. He is pronouncing them legally righteous because you don't have to pay the penalty. His son paid the penalty. Jesus stood in the dock in your place and paid the penalty. And all that should have been stood against him was put upon him. That's the wonder. Thirdly, we receive our justification by faith. That means that we're not justified by our faith. We receive it by faith. So some of the emotional feelings that we have about ourselves and some of the ways that we behave are actually because we have not aligned ourselves with the truth. We're not believing this stuff. When you believe something, you change the way that you are and believe. That means why the Bible talks about renewing your mind. It talks about the way that we we are and so in the bible it means that we drink this truth in that i live i'm no longer going to live by my emotional feelings the past the things have happened the things that might occur i'm going to live by what the bible tells me i now am 
That's what he means. So when, when the devil comes up to me and says to me, look, Nigel, you are like this, you go, no, I'm not. That's what choosing to do. When, when I, can, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the thing. And you go, okay, not only can I do it. And you engage faith and you move into it. And that's where it becomes a supernatural thing that actually then occurs. It doesn't occur because you don't engage faith and go, right, now, stuff you, walk in this way. And you have to do that. You have to go, get behind me, Satan. I'm going to move this way now. I'm going to choose not to live by this, but this. And then you get the Holy Spirit that comes, engages you to be able to do it. That's the way that it works. How does it work in regard to being, how do I feel about myself? One, Romans one. The whole thing about Romans is that it's the thing about the Lord, the whole thing about Romans. Read the whole book. Romans chapter 8. There is therefore no, now, no condemnation. Don't have it, folks. Kick up a fuss. Go bonkers at it. Don't get angry that you're miserable. Go get angry at the thing that caused you to be miserable. That's the thing. No, I will not let this condemn me anymore. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? No one. 34, who will condemn Christ Jesus, the one who died? More than that, the one who was raised at the right hand and who is interceding for us. Who will separate us from the love of, from the love of Christ? Will my wart on my little toe will? No. No, don't. Every time things like, you've got to go, no, 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 won't have it. Not going to have it. Then there's the list. How about this one? No, in all these things... I am a miserable prat that walks along the face of this earth with my nose on the ground thinking that I am worthless. No, come on, God. You'll have to do that one, Phil Harmon. No, in all these things, I am more than conquerors through Christ who loved me. You have to change the view. And it isn't, well, he's arrogant. No, I'm biblical, folks. It's not arrogance. 38. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels, rulers, those present things to come, height, depth, anything else, will be able to separate me from the love. But I don't sense the love of God. That is rubbish. I don't sense his presence. That's because your sense is wrong. It isn't. I don't sense the Holy Spirit here. What does the Bible say? For heaven's sake. It says, you need your senses. No, it doesn't. It says, you cannot be separated from the love of God. It is impossible. Anything that makes that possible is wrong. And you have to apply. You have to go, no. And what we do is we go, oh, no, I can't sense the presence of God. Holy Spirit is not here. Oh, no, I can't. Uh, and then we go to, and we don't say to us, I could be wrong here. <laughs> We don't do that. And they go, no, it's the sermons. It's Joe. That's the ministry. There's no ministry. We didn't speak in tongues. It's all that. No. No. Please, no. The Bible says it is impossible. You are as loved right now as you ever will be. You won't go to heaven and go, oh, that's a surprise. No. It is impossible. It is impossible for you to be separated from the love of God. Get on with this, Nigel. 
Everything needed legally to be done was done so that you could know those things. What you do is that if you don't experience those things, you take it back to the law court and you say, well, we need another trial then. We need another Jesus to come and stand into the dock. We need to do that. That's what happens. Do you see that? We need another cross then because I can't sense the the sense of the presence of God. Hear this. Whoopi, you're so loved. Thank you, Belinda. Last one. Did you like the boxes? It took me ages to do that. I had to ask. I had to ask Callie. Reconciliation. I want you to leave the law court behind. I want you to think of all these things. Go, didn't, didn't make the cross amazing. It just wasn't, you know, just what's going on up there. We, we've left behind the law court. Can you imagine those people, those Roman soldiers looking at the cross? They would not have a clue what's going on, would they? They're just looking at an event. We're looking at something that transcends time and space. We've left behind the law court. Now we're in the place of the home and family and friends. To reconcile means to restore a relationship or restore a friendship to an original relationship. So it's presupposed to have been broken and then been recovered, in this case, by Jesus on the cross. The first thing to say about the work on the cross is that it's his work to bring you to God. That's the purpose. We just get this right. We get this, another one in the gospel. It isn't so that you get a new body and in Steve's case, new hair. It is the whole purpose uh, is so that you might be brought to God. That's the purpose. That's the reason that you have been saved, to bring you into a relationship with God. The other side of it is that the relationship has been broken between man and God and the purpose we've stated. So Paul now says, because of the work of reconciliation, we have peace with God, meaning there is now no, there's now a, a different relationship between us and God, meaning that we're part of his family, meaning that we're adopted as sons, we're his heirs, we have access to him in a new and living way. Let's just deal with some side issues first. Uh, But reconciliation is horizontal as well as vertical. We haven't got time to do with this. It means that in the cross, God reconciled us to God. But it also means that we have the power, therefore, to be reconciled to one another. Because what we say is that, you know, I can't talk to them for the rest of my life because uh, they are from Wolverhampton and they lead a church and so I won't, and that sort of stuff. You can't say that, because what you say, therefore, is in that statement, is that Jesus, and we we can't have the work of the cross. It doesn't succeed. Do you see that? That's the argument. So uh, uh, we haven't got time to go into that. But if you look at it in the Bible, you can see that. So Ephesians chapter 2, you were separated from Christ, but Christ Jesus brought you... near how did he bring you near by the blood of jesus christ who is he he's our peace he has brought us peace with god he has broken down the wall of hostility that he might create what new one new man in christ and then he goes on therefore you're no longer foreigners and strangers they're aliens it isn't just the relationship was done here it was done here that's the way that it works also paul alludes to the reconciliation of all things which, if I'm honest, um, uh, gets theologians in a right-ass stew. 
so I'm not going to do it. But just to give you a little bit of a taster of all this, and I won't comment on this, F.S. Bruce says that this reconciliation of all things is the pacification of cosmic beings submitted against their wills to a power which they cannot resist. So you understood that, didn't you? Similar to, if you like, uh, every knee shall bow, uh, but when you take that statement, it seems to therefore be a forced thing, which is why theologians struggle with it. Other things that happen in reconciliation is not just that way, and not just the all things, including cosmic things, but in also they talk about us being uh, reconciled to the, the created order, which include animals and all that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, so uh, we'll be reconciled and, and know a creative order in a way that Adam knew with creation. Who knows? We talked about heaven on Wednesday, didn't we? Did you do the animal bit? Are you going to lie with the lion and the lamb then? Is that going to work? That's that. So leaving you guessing, that leaves the controversy behind. What can we say? Here it is. We conclude with this. The, the language of reconciliation means that there is enmity between us and God. That we were an enemy of God, the Bible said, there was hostility. That may be active in the fact that we hate God. It may be passive in the fact that we ignore God. But hold on a minute. Is reconciliation just one way? Theologian Emil Brummer says this, Reconciliation presupposes enmity between two parties. To put it more exactly, reconciliation presupposes enmity on both sides. That man is the enemy of God because of sin and God is the enemy of man because of sin. Now I think that therefore makes the cross more outstanding because Jesus not only was dealing with you, he was dealing with his father. They're amazing on the cross. Jesus is dealing with your sin (laughs) and the way that his father has been in regard to anger and wrath. He's diverting that. Isn't that an extraordinary moment? I just think, I just look at that and go, oh, this means the person doing this impossible work of joining people together is Jesus. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 15, verses 18 and 19. All this is from God, through whom Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him and entrusting to us the, rec- the message of reconciliation. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. The finished work of Jesus on the cross was to take away everything that divides us between man and God and God and man and enable us to draw in. And on the cross, Jesus said, I need to come back in August... 2012 because there are lots of people that feel that God's not near no on the cross Jesus said it is finished
access to God has not been denied, the only person that, that causes a non-access of God is me and you. Our thinking, the way that we are, that's what causes it. No, Jesus said it is finished you can have an access to the Father. In fact, he says more than that. Hebrews says, I want you to come with confidence now. How was that achieved? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake he made himself sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is how. And I believed the statement to be one of the most staggering in the Bible for our sake God made the sinless Jesus to be sin with our sins <laughs> his personal sinlessness uniquely qualified him to bear my sin in my place or as Paul says Jesus became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, our sins were imputed onto the sinless Jesus so that I might be entitled to know the presence of God. Don't be robbed from this. There's a a theologian called Diagetus is in the second century and looking at that statement he wrote in a, um, a document next to it which we still have and he wrote uh, so in his tracking of this, these words it's like you writing in the Bible and somebody picking it up thousands of years afterwards. He wrote this next to that statement. Oh, sweet exchange. Isn't that lovely? <laughs> Luther wrote to a monk. The monk was distressed with his own sin. He said this, Learn how to, how to know Christ and him crucified. Learn how to sing to him and say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You took what was mine, yet set me on what was yours. You became what you were not, that I might become what I was not. <laughs> so the question is this. Joe, if you want to come behind me. How will I respond to the achievements of the cross? Wesley said this uh, right at the very beginning and right at the end of his hymn. Uh, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, and then he goes on and on and on and on, and then he con concludes this, love so amazing, so divine, demands what? My soul, my life, my all. May that be our response to the work of the cross.